0: Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We're in a series on the Gospel of John titled Witness to the Light, and following the sermon, you'll hear the weekly Q&A. We are in week three in our series in John. This series is going to take us through Easter, and then we'll transition from there. Um, But if you remember, the last couple of weeks, including Advent, uh, we looked at John chapter 1, the prologue, what they call the prologue to the gospel, John 1, 1 through 18. And I've said this a number of times already, but it bears repeating, that John begins his gospel by painting this big picture of who Jesus is, what they call a a high Christology. This big vision that Jesus wasn't just a great moral teacher, though he was. He wasn't just a great leader, though he was. He wasn't just a great moral example, though he was. He was all those things and more. In fact, John starts his gospel by saying that Jesus was pre-existent that he existed for all of eternity, that he existed with God for all eternity. In fact, not only did he exist with God, but he was God. This is the beginning of the gospel where John kind of wants us to jump off from and understand the center of the gospel, according to John, is Jesus, the divine word of God incarnate in the flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and so we get through 18 verses of this prologue and then as we looked at last week John kind of narratively turns the focus to us and says who are you right so here's who Jesus is Jesus is the creator Jesus is the sustainer everything that has been made has been made through him and who are you This was the first great question that John asks, and this week we get a second. We read Jesus's first words in the gospel, and we'll see the question that he has to ask us, okay? Now, I think that one of the great tragedies of modern life is the lack of space that many of us have to ponder really important questions right? Like the biggest, most important questions like who are you and what do you want in the world and what are you aiming for are far too big a questions to be able to arrive at quickly. In fact, I would submit that any question that you can answer quickly is either a really shallow question or you've given a very bad answer, okay? So I think... It is paramount importance for Christians especially, but I would argue all people, to create space in their lives to answer some of the big questions uh, of the world. In fact, Socrates once said, an unexamined life is not worth living. And that may be a bit dramatic, but that's, you know, that's what the Greek philosophers did. They were dramatic. So uh, I want to get into our passage here and see what this first question or second question that Jesus is going to ask us here. Verse 35. It says the next day, it's the next day right after the narrative we looked at last week where John the Baptist was preaching says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, this is a distillation of the sermon that John the Baptist had given the day before where he said, not only behold the Lamb of God, but he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he who is before me because he was before me, speaking to Jesus's uh, preexistence. existence uh, He says, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals because he is so great. Now, the very next day, he sees Jesus again and says, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? In other words, what do you want from me? This is one of the most important questions that we can ask of ourselves when it comes to Jesus, but honestly when it comes to any part of our lives. What do you want? What do you want from your life? What do you want from your work? What do you want from your relationships? What do you want from your marriage? What do you want from your kids? What do you want your for your hobbies? What do you want from your church? What do you want from Jesus? You see, without an answer to that question, you are at the mercy of the thing that you are pursuing. If you don't dictate terms and decide what it is you want from the thing, the thing will tell you what you want from it. I notice this every time I pick up my phone. I turn on my phone, I unlock it with a very specific purpose, and then 45 seconds later, I'm looking at something that was not the purpose, and I cannot remember what the purpose was for which I opened my phone. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, because they're the devil, okay? Convinced of that, Right. So if we don't have a clear idea of what it is we want from a thing, the thing will tell us what we want. So for tonight specifically, though, I want us to think about the question, what do we want from Jesus? These disciples started following Jesus and, it, and they did so, it appears a little creepily, right? So it says, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus, Like, there's no context where that's not creepy, right? Like, they just start following him at a distance, and then he notices in verse 36, he turned, saw them following, and said, what are you seeking? Which I think is just Bible nice for what? What do you want? What do you want from me, right? Now, the answer that the disciples give, the answer that there's a couple of different interactions like this, three in total, give us some ideas for what these disciples wanted from Jesus. And at every point, they ask Jesus for a thing. They tell Jesus what they want, whether explicitly or implicitly. And Jesus says, yes, and, or yes, but, or yes, and I'm going to give you a little more than that, or yes, but are you sure that's actually what you want from me? So number one is here in this passage, verse 38 continues, It says, "'And they said to him, "'Rabbi,' which means teacher, "'where are you staying?' right? This, at at first glance, this makes me laugh because it feels like they were following Jesus at a distance that they thought he might not know. And then all of a sudden he turns around and says, why are you following me? What do you want from me? And they're like, uh, 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 where are you staying? Right? Like they, they, that was the first thing that came into their minds, right? Like it, maybe they weren't ready for the question. Maybe it's a total non sequitur. Maybe they've just been with John the Baptist too long. And they're hoping that Jesus like lives in a place, Right? Because John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and they're like, is there a roof involved? Because we're in. Right? But there's, there's something deeper here. In fact, uh, the, the word that is translated here, staying, is a word that John's going to use a whole bunch of times in his gospel. And almost every other time it's translated Abide. Abide. They are asking Jesus, where where are you? Where are you being? Where are you hanging? Where, Where are you spending your life? Can we be with you? And they preface all of that by calling him rabbi. They've gone from one person, John the Baptist, who did his job by pointing them to Jesus. And they go, okay, well, John's telling us to go with Jesus because Jesus is the Lamb of God. John's just the messenger. And so then they go to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want from me? And they go, will you be our rabbi? Can we start to follow you now? Can we be with you now that we are no longer with John? And Jesus responds they say, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour or about four o'clock in the afternoon. Now, two other times in this narrative, Jesus says something similar in verse 43. It says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said, follow me. In verses 45 and 46, Philip then kind of following in his master's footsteps, talks to Nathaniel and asks him to come follow Jesus. And Nathaniel has a question we'll look at here in a moment. And, And Philip just goes, come and see, just come and see. Spurgeon calls Christianity a come and see gospel. That life with Jesus, that the gospel lived out is a seeable life. In fact, Jesus later in John chapter 10 says, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That this is the promise. Jesus sees these disciples come to him and go, and he says, what are you seeking? And they go, man, we just want to be with you. We we want you to be our rabbi. We want want to follow you and be with you. And wherever you're going, we want to go. And he says the same thing to Philip and to Nathaniel, "Just, Just come and see." Come and see what I'm doing. Come and experience life with me. So these disciples were, were asking Jesus, can, can you be our teacher? Can you be our rabbi? And Jesus says, yeah, but you have to follow me. I'm not just going to teach you information from a distance. you got to come with me. you got to walk with me. you got to be with me. you got to experience life with me. And here's the promise. That life with Jesus is the abundant life. Now, here's one of my favorite things about this, about the gospel message and about Jesus' message that this idea of the abundant life is both never going to be fully experienced by you until heaven and available to you in part now. Now, we make the mistake of not holding those two things in tension. And so we take passages like this. We take the message of Jesus and go, hey, it's all this is kind of this hyper-spiritualized future kind of an idea of like, we just got to make it through this world and get to heaven. Or we flip it the other side and we go, man, everything is about now and we've got to work to so make this a better place now. And Jesus goes, yeah, yes and both and neither at the same time. You've got to press into life in me, and in fact, in this world, in this life, there is a way to be. In fact, I would say it this way, that life following Jesus is the fullest, truest, greatest experience of life you can ever live. Like, life with Jesus will make you more content and more peaceful and have more joy, and it will be in every way better. Now, will it be perfect? No. Even if you perfectly follow Jesus in every possible way, would it be perfect? Would your life be without pain and suffering? Class? No. Good. You can do this. No. Why? Because other people, they're the worst. They ruin everything, right? Like we're doing great and other people run into us and and that's that's why. So here's the thing. Uh, One of my favorite theologians, a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, talks about this as the grain of the universe, that the way in which God created the world to be is like the grain of wood, that if you follow it, it's smooth and it directs you down the wood the way it ought to be and that there is a way it ought to be and that to the degree, we can follow that grain, then the, the, the friction of life is diminished, right? So this is, this is in some sense, I think, obvious to us and at the same time can become kind of over-spiritualized where we go, no, life with Jesus is just about faith and it's about hope and it's about believing and then we get to heaven and everything's okay. Well, no, Jesus calls us to follow him to actually walk in his ways, to actually experience life with him, to actually see what he teaches and live it out. In fact, this this idea of come and see can make evangelism really simple. Evangelism can simply be us saying, to the degree that I follow Jesus, I experience joy, peace, contentment, and love. And to the degree that I do my own thing, I experience insecurity, guilt, shame, regret, striving, arrogance, and a desire for control. Come and see. And, and these aren't just examples. This is me. When, when in my life, when I'm following Jesus, I experience joy and contentment and peace in a way that I don't otherwise. And when I'm doing my own thing and kind of striving, trying to make my own way and control my own world, instead of living in submission to Christ, I experience insecurity, I experience fear, I experience guilt and shame and more striving and more striving and more desire for control. And it's the spiral that happens. So there's a challenge, though, baked into this, right? The challenge is that Jesus is able to say, hey, listen, you, you, you want me to be your teacher? That's fine, come and see. Come and see what life with me is like. But I wonder, I wonder what would happen if we said to people around us, come and see. Like, what would they see? What would they see? That's a challenge to me. It's a conviction to me. And, and here's, here's, here's how I want you to hear this. Let me start with how I don't want you to hear this. What I don't want you to hear is, gosh, until my life is fully with Jesus all the time, consistently walking in his ways, I shouldn't tell people to come and see. Because, man, perfection of behavior is not the gospel. That's not the goal, that's not the promise. Remember, the gospel is we will never be perfect in our behavior, which is why Jesus had to die. So there is grace for us. So hopefully what people see, if we were to say, come and look and come and see my life, they would see us striving to walk with Jesus and then failing and repenting and walking in grace and striving to walk with Jesus, failing, repenting, experiencing grace over and over and over and over. And ideally, they would see that that grace is transforming us little by little by little, but they would experience a core belief within us that, man, life with Jesus is better. It's just simply better. So the disciples ask, can you be our teacher? And Jesus says, yeah, but here's the thing, that means you've got to walk with me. You've got to follow me. The idea of Christianity is not just a a, a set of ideas or a set of rules to be followed from a distance. It's an invitation to be with Jesus. It's an invitation to follow him in everything he does. So he'll be your teacher, but that means you have to follow him. Second person in, in verse 40 says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ, which means the anointed one. This is the one Israel's been waiting for to save them and bring about uh, their freedom. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, and Peter means rock. Now, Here's um, something we've got to understand. Um, We can experience the better life of life following Jesus. We can experience that better life without Jesus. We can't, right? We can experience the life of Jesus without Jesus. We can, if if we find ways to grow in our discipline, and many of us are very disciplined, we can tell the truth all the time. And telling the truth is always better than lying, and you will get into much less trouble if you always tell the truth and never lie, period. That's just true. You don't need Jesus in order to reap the benefits of telling the truth. Like telling the truth is always going to be better. Being humble rather than arrogant is always going to be better, right? Not, not stabbing people is always going to be better than stabbing people, right? These are the lessons you're learning in church. This is very important. You might want to write that one down. There is a way to be in the world. This grain of the universe does not require you 100% of the time to have the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide you through it. You can live that life, but... But, it is a poor facsimile of the life you were meant to live. Settling for that experience is a bit like standing outside of Disneyland, as I did this last summer. My wife and I were in Orlando in the summer, against our wills, obviously. And uh, and we were staying in this hotel that was near Disneyland. It was like Disney, Disney World, I guess, Disney World adjacent. And, uh, and so we could walk to this little area that was like Disney-ish, uh, clearly owned by Disney, um, but it was a sad version of Disney, right? And so you, you had the trinkets and you had the branding and you had like some of the little characters that you're like, wasn't that a mouse that died in Cinderella? Or, you know, like there's like the, the off-brand uh, characters, Eeyore, I saw Eeyore walk in and then walk out and I'm like, oh, this place is too depressing for Eeyore. That's, that's kind of what this life would be like. See, see uh, Philip, or Simon Peter, Simon Peter's brother Andrew, comes to Simon Peter and goes, Listen, we found the guy. We found the Messiah. We found the Christ. We found the Savior. We found the one. And Peter responds, runs with Andrew to Jesus, and goes, is this, this is the guy? You're gonna be the Savior? You're the Messiah? And what does Jesus do? First thing he says to Peter, you're Peter. You're you're Peter, son of John, or in other translation, Peter bar Jonah, son of John or son of Jonah. He goes, now you will be called Peter. You will be called the rock. You are no longer Simon, son of John. You are now Peter. And in that moment changed the destiny of Peter's life forever. See. Simon, it means kind of one who hears or, or the listener, the hearer. And John, is, it means kind of the root word of it is like the muck or the mire or the shifting sand. And so this was literally the one who hears on shifting sand. And in this one moment, Jesus goes, no longer are you shifting sand. You are now Simon Peter. You are the rock. D.A. Carson, uh, kind of a well-known theologian, says this, Jesus so calls them that he makes them what he calls them to be. Let me say that again. Jesus so calls them that he makes them what he calls him to be. Jesus called him the rock, and then he made him the rock. So Peter comes to Jesus, Andrew comes to Jesus, Philip comes to Jesus, all of these disciples come to Jesus and go, will you be my savior? Will you be the Messiah? Will you be the chosen one, the anointed one? Will you rescue us? And Jesus says, yeah, but I will also change you in the process. Because you may not need rescuing from what you think you need rescuing from. You may not need the Messiah that you think you need. And so there is going to be something deeper that happens here besides just me rescuing you from whatever political captivity you find yourself in, whatever kind of social captivity you think you're in, whatever you think is the problem may not actually be the problem. And I'm just telling you, if you want me to be the savior, that saving, that solution is going to run all the way down to the very center and core of who you are. It's going to include transformation. Many Christians are basically functional moralists the very thing that we kind of hate and, and, and try to push away from and, the, and that the scriptures really vilify people who are only about the rules and only about behavior and, and not about the heart at all. And we want to be people who aren't about the rules and we're not about laws. It's not about just follow Jesus and do these things. It's about the heart and it's about, you know, having relationship and all of these things. And then, And then we turn around and the only thing we ask Jesus to change is our behavior. The only thing we hope will be saved, that we will be saved from, is our sins. We have this idea that that our behavior is kind of this top layer of who we are. It's just kind of the the outside, and we just need to kind of get that scraped off so that the core of who we are can be what it's always meant to be. And Jesus goes, No, see the problem goes all the way down to the middle. I have to actually change who you are there has to be transformation because see sin moves from here and works itself out so too does your transformation so too does your saving has to start here and work itself out your behavior is always a reflection of what's happening in here And so Jesus goes, man, if I, just, if I just change your behavior out here, man, I, I never get to actually what matters. More bad behavior will just keep coming. More destructive, pain-giving, and painful behavior will keep coming out of you unless you let me get deep into here. Let's actually get to change your being and not just your behavior. So Peter wants a savior. But Jesus goes, make sure you know what you're talking about, man. Make sure you know what you're asking. You just got to know that this is what Jesus is aiming for with you. You come to him wanting him to save you from your sin. And he goes, okay, but, I just, but, but here's what you got to know. In order to actually save you, I got to start in the deepest parts of you. And then I'm going to work my way out from there. My goal is to transform you. My aim is to make you into a new being, a new person. And I'm going to tell you now It's going to hurt because you're going to fight me. And some of this stuff runs deep. And so here's what we got to know. We can ask Jesus to be our Savior, but he goes, okay. But I will use whatever means necessary to root sin out of your heart. Because there is nothing more important to me, Jesus says to us. There is nothing more important to me than actually changing you. And some of that stuff runs real deep. And so I will use pain. I will use loss. I will, I will use miracles and joy and provision. I will use my word. I will use prayer. I'll use other people. that Everything in creation is at my disposal. But just know... This is what I'm trying to do. So yeah, I'll be your savior, but just know that that means that I'm gonna change you. Number three, verse 44, it says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I've never been to Nazareth, sounds terrible. I picture Piala, okay? That's what I picture. Nathanael's like, what, there? Right, how? Philip says, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And I, and I love what Jesus' response is. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Like, that's it? That's all I had to say. I saw you under a fig tree. I, I could have just walked by you and seen you and, you. and you proclaim me the king of Israel and the son of God because I saw that? Like, you are easily impressed, man. I like you. Come hang out with me. He says, I saw you on the figure. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel says to Jesus, You are the king. You are God. Can you be God? Can you be king? Can that actually, can you be that guy that's actually ruling and reigning over the world? Can you actually bring justice? Can you actually be sovereign? Because man, our world is jacked up. I see so many things out here that I want to see God's justice play out on. Man, I I hear of death and heartache, and I I know it's a a little thing, and sometimes celebrity stuff gets weird, but you know, this morning, uh, uh, Kobe Bryant passed away, and it was very sudden, and and I was telling some guys, Kobe is just a couple months older than I am, and um, both born in 1978, and so I remember when he went into the NBA, just out of high school, and I was just out of high school, and it was like, that's crazy. Like I, it, that could be me. Like if I was way more athletic and taller and better in every way, that could be me. And so it was always like, man, I, I, he, we're the same age. He has four kids and, and, and to, for in one moment for it just to be gone. Man, I see stuff like that, and, and, and he, you know, his death's gonna get more attention than it deserves probably because he's a celebrity and so many people who die every day get way less attention than they deserve. Death is always a tragedy. But sometimes it's these kinds of moments that kind of open our eyes to the fragility of it all, a guy who seems so powerful and so in charge and so rich and so important that he can just be dead. And I look at that and I go, man, God, be God. Be sovereign. Lift that helicopter up. Step in. Bring justice. Bring mercy. Nathaniel wants Jesus to be God and wants Jesus to be king. But I wonder, I wonder sometimes if we want God to We want Jesus to be God and we want Jesus to be king as long as it's for the things that we see and want him to be king over and God of. So there's a difference between Jesus, I want you to be God and king, and Jesus, I want you to be my God and king. I want you to be Lord over my life. I want you to rule in every area of my own life. I mean, I can see things out there that are broken that I want you to fix. I I can see people out there who are in rebellion who need to be corrected, but like take care of them first. I've got to be down the list. I mean, eventually get back to me, but take care of them first. Jesus says, yeah, I can be God and King, but I'm your God and King too. We don't just get justice and sovereignty and law for others, we get it for ourselves. See, it it, it may seem obvious, but if all of the stuff that we've read about Jesus is true, then the only right response is allegiance to him as our God and king. That's the only option. If if he truly is who John says he is, if, if the pages of the scriptures are true about who Jesus is, our only option is to bow to him as God and king or live in outright rebellion. Those are our only options. If he is who John says he is, he is not to be questioned. He is to be obeyed. Now, that doesn't mean we're not to ask questions, but there's a difference between asking questions and and being questioned, right? Sometimes my kids will ask me questions that the tone of their voice and their posture uh, uh, is offensive to me, right? Like they are questioning not not just asking me a question, but they're questioning my authority as father and my strength over them. Right? Like, I feel challenged by them, and then I pick them up and remind them of what's happening here. Right? There's a difference. And I tell my kids all the time if you just say, hey, daddy, um, why do you feel like I need to go clean my room right now? I, we can have a conversation all day long because that acknowledges my sovereignty in a way that satisfies my wrath. But when I say, hey, go clean up your room, and they go, why? Why should I have to do that? I go, oh, ha, 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 ha. Okay, okay, this is what we're doing here, all right. So this is not to say that we cannot ask God questions. God can handle all of our questions. But see, there's a way to approach this. We talked about this two weeks ago in our first sermon in this series that John starts by showing us who Jesus is and then rolls out what Jesus said and what Jesus did so that we can then go, well, Jesus is the word of God incarnate. He is divine and perfect in every way. He created the grain of the universe. Therefore, what he teaches is good. What he teaches is for our good. What he teaches is the very grain of the universe that he created. When most often, we do it the opposite way, where we assess what Jesus taught, we assess what Jesus did, we judge it according to our standards, and then that judgment is then reflected on who Jesus is. Now, here's the problem with that we will inevitably run into something Jesus said or something Jesus did that is, uh, it, it's not what we want to hear. Either it tells us to do something we don't want to do or it, it, you know, it confronts a, a cultural ideology or it challenges common knowledge or something where we come up against a thing and we go, well, that's not right, therefore Jesus can't be which you know if we really think about it puts us in a pretty precarious position because we have just established our authority over God's word we have said that we in all of our I'm sure infinite wisdom and knowledge have the ability to assess the words and actions of Jesus and then tell whether or not they are good or bad helpful or unhelpful relevant or outdated and then reflect that upon Jesus and go well Jesus can't be worth following because this idea is wrong according to me and, you know, I've, I've, I've lived for like 40 years now, and, uh, and I've read several books. And, uh, and, yeah, I mean, I've only lived in America uh, during the last couple decades, but, you know, I've, I've been to London, and so I think that uh, I could probably judge this stuff. Puts ourselves in, in a pretty pretty precarious position. One that I'm not sure we can sustain to be judge, jury, and executioner of the words of God and then be able to judge who God is, who Jesus is. In the words of the greatest American poet of all time, Bob Dylan, says you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Jesus says, yeah, I can be God and king. I am God and king. But that means I'm your God and king. And every person in this room, and Dylan does a great job of describing a lot of different people in the verses. He says, no matter who you are, you could be the ambassador to France. You're going to have to serve somebody. It's unavoidable that all of us give our allegiance, our obedience to someone. And you may go, well, no, because I I take a little from here and I listen to that and I listen to him and I listen to her. Great, okay, so you're serving yourself. You have chosen to gather for yourself a buffet plate of ideas and given some sense of power and sovereignty to those ideas which just so happen to be a reflection of your own ideas. How'd that happen? Until they're not and you change your mind because you believe things today that you didn't five years ago and you continue to be sovereign over your own life. And so I think this passage challenges us. It challenges us, challenges us to ask who is actually the best person for the job to be your God and King? who is wise enough, omniscient enough, powerful enough, loving enough for that role. Jesus says, I can be the God and king of the world. I am the God and king of the world, but I, can, I also am your God and king too. And I want to wrap with this. At the very end of this passage, Jesus alludes to something from the Old Testament that's really important and and is uh, the first moment of him establishing who he is. See, in verse 51, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's Probable that Nathaniel was an Old Testament scholar of some kind. It's possible even that when he was under the famed fig tree, that he was reading the Torah, and perhaps he had read in Genesis chapter twenty-eight when, uh, when Isaac, excuse me, when uh, when Jacob was running from Laban and was desperate and poor and had nothing, and he fell asleep with his head on a rock, and he had a dream. And in that dream, he saw heaven open and a ladder going between heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending that ladder. And so perhaps as he's reading that story, this famous story of Jacob's ladder about a connection between heaven and earth upon which the angels would ascend and descend, and he comes to Jesus and Jesus says to him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. An obvious allusion to Jacob, who was the, the deceiver, whose name was, whose name was changed to Israel, who has this vision of a ladder. Jesus is speaking Old Testament language to Jacob, Old Testament language about Jacob to Nathaniel, essentially saying, listen, You know the ladder, the famous ladder, the connection between heaven and earth. I am that ladder. I am the connection between heaven and earth. I am what ties these two realms together. I am the God who loves creation, loves his creation enough to enter into it, to form this bond, to make this connection, to make a way for you to be with God. I love you enough to do that, and I'm powerful enough to bring you with me. That is the God and King we need. That is the God and King we want. So when we think about this, when we think about who rules and reigns our lives, when we think about this question of what do you want, what do you want from Jesus? What do you want from church? What do you want from your faith? What do you want from all of this? Jesus goes, I'll be your teacher, but just know that means you got to follow me, and I'll, and I'll be your savior, but just know that means I'm going to change you by any means necessary. And yeah, I will be God and king over the universe. There will be justice and there will be mercy and there is law and there is truth. But man, that applies to you too. I am your God and king as well to which when we can get our heads around that, when we get our hearts around that, we go, yes, amen. I want to follow you because that's the grain of the universe that leads to my greatest flourishing. I want you to save me from the inside out because when I'm honest with myself, I know that the muck and the grime and the sin goes all the way down. And I want you to be God and king over me because I can't handle the job. I keep screwing it up over and over and over. Be my God and king. And then, and then we walk. And then we walk with him and experience the life he's offered. Question number one. How do we start the process of evaluating what we want? It's a great question. It's a very practical question. Um, and, and I would say, how do we start? We start like this. You have to create space. I, I said this at the very beginning of my message, but you cannot answer important questions uh, without thinking hard. And creating space to, to, to actually think hard and think long about really important questions. And this, these questions, the questions don't get a lot bigger or more important than this, right? So I'd say first and foremost, create space. So if you don't practice on somewhat of a regular basis, silence and solitude, I really think you need to begin to do that right? So I know it's easy for me to say I'm a pastor. This is part of my job. It's part of my thing to be super spiritual and all that. And I am. Uh, But uh, really recommend creating space, even if it's just once a quarter or something, start it once a year and and take a day or even just half a day because a a whole day of silence and solitude is hard, right? 15 minutes in, you're checking your watch. And so don't wear a watch. Uh, It's really hard. But without that space, You are constantly inundated by less important distractions that are more interesting or more relevant or more tempting to think about than this important thing. So you have to create space. And then I would start by just saying, ask the question. Just very simply ask the question and write down your answers. Just write down anything, nonsense, whatever comes to your mind. Uh, If it's another language, great, that's cool. Uh, And uh, and just, just get out of you answers to what that could be. And just begin to give yourself the space to answer questions like uh, a question like that, and to really consider it, because we simply don't do it. We don't create the space for it. So start by creating space. Start by just beginning to think about it and write it down. But more importantly, read your Bible. I say this to you all the time. Read your Bible every day. Pray every day. Know Jesus. Get to know him. Arlon's desire to understand, read the Bible better is such a beautiful prayer request. Because the Bible is not the end. We're not here to learn the Bible. The Bible is only valuable insofar as it points us to Jesus. Insofar as it helps us know God. That's the goal. And so we read the Bible so that we know God. And as we know God, we begin to be able to answer questions like, okay, what do I actually want? So that's number one. Second question. I recognize that Jesus is Lord and his leadership is better how can I change to allow him to be Lord each day? How do I apply the truth of the sermon? Um, I, I would start with this. One, um, commit yourself to the idea that that's what you want, right? Just, the, just to start, just to say, okay, starting tonight or starting tomorrow, right? Get all your sinning out of the way. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to start following Jesus, right? I'm going to start listening to him. And, and here's the thing. Your default mode is to have a choice in front of you and just make the choice. Based on whatever it is you want or think or whatever, that's your default, is to see a thing, make a choice. So you have to break that. There has to be a disruption to that default. So you have to have some kind of cue, some kind of reminder to go, no, that's not who I am. anymore. That's not what I want to do anymore. When I have a question in front of me, my first question needs to be something like, I don't know, what would Jesus do? right? Maybe you get a bracelet or something. I don't know. It just came to my mind. Uh, but some kind of cue that reminds you, no, I'm doing things different. I'm, I'm, I'm organizing my life differently. And then begin to actually ask yourself that question okay what does Jesus want for me in this moment here's a decision another decision a big decision a small decision Jesus has desires for you in almost every decision right like I have literally stood before a menu at a restaurant and thought to myself what would Jesus want for me right it's always the carne asada that's what I hear from the spirit but but I ask the question right and that's half the battle so remind yourself in building patterns and habits of asking that question, and then again, wake up every morning and read your Bible so you get to know Jesus. Wake up every morning and pray so you get to know Jesus and you learn to hear his voice. So that over time, what happens is it has to be less and less and less of a conscious moment of, okay, what, what does Jesus want for me in this moment that you will grow to begin? This is a, a constant prayer request for myself that I would love what God loves and I would hate what God hates. So that it's not some separate thing where I go, I love this and hate this, but God loves this and hates this, so I guess I gotta do his thing. That is how it is a lot of times. My prayer request is that over time, those two things would become one so that in that moment, when I do just respond, I respond with the heart of God. That's what it looks like to grow in your faith and grow in sanctification, okay? So begin there. Last question, do one more. Do we follow Jesus because we change? And there's a couple of different ways that 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 question could be phrased or that could be asking. And so I'm just gonna have to pick one. And so I'm gonna pick the one that says, do we follow Jesus just in order to change? Like, is that a good motivation to follow Jesus just so we can change? And I would say, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Right? Like there has to be, in fact, Tim Keller talks about this that evangelism requires some sort of existential moment, some sort of existential need that arises in your life, whether that's an intellectual need, some sort of crisis of of knowledge, uh, it's an experiential need, some sort of crisis of pain or loss in your life, whatever it is, that, that effective evangelism is existential need meeting a prepared witness that you are in each other's lives in a way that when somebody has some moment of need, that you're there to be able to speak gospel truth, to be gospel presence in their life, and that that's the most effective form of evangelism. So I would say, if you sense in your life a need for change, this is your existential moment, don't miss it. Yes, reach out to Jesus in this moment. He can change you, he will change you, and I promise you this, he will change you for the better. He will make you flourish more. He loves you more than you have ever loved anything. And he wants nothing more than your best. And that's going to hurt at times. It's going to be joyful at times. It's going to be incredible. But it's going to happen. So yeah, if you sense a need for change, absolutely reach out to Jesus. And if that's not what you're asking, I'm sorry. Thanks for listening. For more information and podcast episodes, head to iconchurch.org.